0: Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today we're going to venture into the subject of saloons from the 1800s and actually a tragic death that occurred in a saloon in Battle Creek. So come along and join me. This story is called Death in the Bohemia Saloon, and it happened in 1888. So, Frank Herman Booz had a love for the arts. His last name was B O O S. And in an era long before radio and television, he had this love for the arts. He would often have musicians and lovers of music over to his home, and he found that he delighted in entertaining himself and his friends with his music. And often, the form of entertainment included. String trios and quartets with music sessions lasting long into the night, entertaining guests from as far away as Jackson or Kalamazoo at his Battle Creek home. Now, Frank Booz was born in Fulton, Illinois, in March of 1858, and he was the son of John and Maria Rosina Booz. In 1870, his father, who was a Prussian cabinet maker, moved his family from Fulton, Illinois, including his mother and his four brothers and a sister, to Battle Creek. Now, this was when Frank was 12 years old. So this German family would settle in the city, and the father was a successful carpenter and cabinet maker. And Frank would go on to become one of the city's leading businessmen. He was a builder of homes himself and also a banker. And throughout his life, he also invested in many other businesses in town, including the Union Steam Pump Company, and he also contributed to the cultural enhancement of the community at the same time. He served as the director of the Merchant Bank, and he was also a self-taught musician who played the violin and the cello. And eventually, he became one of the founders of the Battle Creek Symphony Orchestra. Now, among one of his many business interests, it was the bottling of and wholesale distribution and retail selling of beer and other types of spirits, but mostly beer being of German descent. And Frank began his retail efforts with a sample room, which was the name for a place during that time where customers would come in and taste test, quote-unquote, the alcohol. Uh, this common vernacular became eventually known as a saloon instead of a sample room. But following the success of his sample room, he opted to open a more elaborate establishment, which he named the Bohemia Saloon. And the saloon officially opened on Tuesday evening, January 8, 1883. And it was located in the Wurstein block. And you can find it on the old Battle Creek fire maps from 1887. It was located at 47 East Main Street. And today that would be Michigan Avenue. And it would be in that huge complex that is the Kellogg Foundation. So the saloon today no longer exists. But it opened its doors in 1883 And it was a popular establishment in town. It was a good place to go get a beer. From 1893 through 1914, Frank Booz was the representative in the region for Anheuser-Busch. And he was the distributor of that alcohol. He would bottle the beer. I suppose the beer was shipped in from Anheuser-Busch. And they bottled it locally and distributed it. His brother-in-law, Leopold Wurstein... And his nephew had the distribution for Paps through the Paps Agency. So Paps Blue Ribbon Beer, as we know it today. And in those days, the beer was shipped in, and then it was bottled locally and distributed. And the Bohemia Saloon was located in a building owned by his brother-in-law, Wurstein. Now, during these years, the public sentiment in favor of universal prohibition of alcohol grew in the country, and Michigan was one of those states that had some early prohibition laws as early as 1850. And they were passed, and then they were stopped. And so there was a lot of uh, antagonism towards people that sold and distributed alcohol. And I've covered some of those stories about prohibition eras in my podcast before. But in the early 1900s, Frank received several citations for violations of local liquor laws in Battle Creek and in Marshall, which he would challenge in court, but ultimately acquiesce and pay the fines. And throughout the years, Frank would fight legal battles in different municipalities for the right to sell and distribute alcohol. One of his biggest battles was in 1910, where he brought suit against the village council in Augusta when they passed an ordinance banning the wholesale and retail sale of alcohol almost overnight, and it effectively shut down his entire business operation. And he challenged it in court. He sued the village of Augusta, and the case eventually went before a judge in Kalamazoo, and he lost. So all of these challenges were ongoing in the life of Frank Booze as one of his business interests, and this continued through the early 1900s as the preamble to the Prohibition era in the United States with the passing of the 18th Amendment of the Constitution, which the 18th Amendment would last until it was repealed in 1933. So the darkest incident, however, that would ever be associated with the Bohemia Saloon would occur in its fifth year of operation in 1888, when one customer would kill another in his establishment. And that is the story I want to tell you today. But I wanted to give you a little bit of a setting for whose saloon it was and what the public sentiment was at the time. And saloons were frequented by a lot of the working class people, particularly they would go in for a beer and get or their own choice of spirits and drink. And a lot of the working class that would come in, or one section of the working class that would come into these saloons outside of local business owners and farmers and that sort of thing, was the railroad workers. There was a lot of railroad workers that came through Battle Creek and were stationed here. And the Bohemia Saloon was a favorite spot for the working men of the city. One of the largest employers during the years that the saloon existed was the railroad. Now, Battle Creek during the late 1800s was a stopping point for the Chicago and Grand Shrunk Railroad, as well as the Peninsular Railroad. And the men who worked for these railroads were sort of in a fraternity among themselves. They frequently traveled together as this was required for what their job did, and they would often spend time together when they were away from home not working. Railroads frequently had... Single men that would be traveling with the railroad and be gone for days at a time, very much like you might see today in the airline industry. So our story begins on the evening of February 3rd, 1888. George McCarty was a freight conductor and Alfred J. Carpenter was a brakeman and both worked for the Chicago and Grand Trunk Railroad. In Battle Creek. And this evening, they traveled over to the Tontine Hotel over in Marshall in the company with some other friends from their work. And they hired a sitting room in the Tontine Hotel, which was an arrangement a lot of hotels made to lease a parlor for socializing. And the Tontine had a liquor license and it also had a bar that was managed by Joseph Toby and it offered a variety of spirits. So George and Alfred and a company of friends went over to the Tontine Hotel in Marshall. And they spent the evening, they had some drinks, they had a good time. And later in the evening, they ventured over to Wagner Hall, which was a facility over in Marshall. And they attended a dance there. And they continued to drink themselves into merriment together. And they continued on this way until about three in the morning when they decided they needed to return to Battle Creek. So this was very well after midnight that they finished their drinking party, and they arrived back in town about 6 o'clock in the morning. So it was about a three-hour journey to get here, probably because uh, they didn't take the train over there. They went by either a wagon or a carriage because they returned their horses at a livery stable the next morning. So traveling the distance between Marshall and Battle Creek was a couple of hours' journey under normal circumstances, but this was at night, and they had been drinking. And they had gone to a livery stable when they arrived, so they must have been coming back in with a horse in a wagon or a carriage in a wagon, and they were putting up their horses. And they were sobering up a little bit as dawn came around, And they still were not required to go back to work yet, so they ventured on over to the Bohemia Saloon after they'd handled their horses at the livery stable. And there they camped out around a table in a corner, continuing to enjoy each other's company. Now, George McCarty was originally from New York, and Alfred Carpenter had grown up in Calhoun County. He had originally lived in Marshall, and then later he moved to Battle Creek. Now, Alfred, whose real name was Alfred Muncy, had been adopted by his stepfather, William Carpenter, when he was a boy, and he'd always used Carpenter as his surname. So despite their regional differences with George growing up in New York and Alfred from Calhoun County, the two carried on as good friends, according to those who knew them. They had been working together for quite some time. So as the morning waned on and they were drinking at the Bohemia Saloon, the friends began to roughhouse a little bit around the saloon. And witnesses say they were not extremely intoxicated at this point, but they were roughhousing around the saloon. And the men were, in fact, clean-shaven. And George McCarty was known for being quite fastidious in his habits and dress, but they were having a few drinks and albeit on a reduced scale from what they had done in their prior evening celebrations over in Marshall. Perhaps they were feeling a little bit spirited and recalling antics from the night before, but they were just known to be scuffling around the saloon, kind of wrestling and uh, doing what men will do when they've had a few beers, at least back in the 1800s. Anyway, so George carried with him a 32 caliber revolver, which was described during this time as a self-acting revolver or self-caulking. And I researched the age of the gun and the time period, and a standard revolver is normally manually operated, which you use the action of caulking the hammer to advance the cylinder, and then when one pulls the trigger, it becomes a double action. You caulk it, and then you pull the trigger. Um, A self-caulking or self-acting revolver was likely the early version of the semi-automatic revolver. It's possibly if it was an 1863 Spanish gun design, which used a gas piston to advance the cylinder by pulling the trigger. So this revolver, you didn't have to cock it. All you had to do was pull the trigger. And it was also a much lighter trigger pull, which made it very easy to fire, as it didn't really require pulling back the hammer. cock the gun so while they're scuffling around the saloon george and alfred are kind of wrestling a little bit and george flourishes his revolver in jest and he points the gun at alfred and in one quick motion i guess he pulled it out of his pants and he pointed it at alfred and then the weapon discharged now he had recklessly as some debated later or perhaps he did it ruthlessly he, pointed, he placed his finger on the trigger when he had pulled it out of his pocket, and the bullet ended up going through Alfred's right eye and out the back of his head, and he collapsed immediately to the floor. Blood was splattered all over the wall, across the furniture, it was just a mess. And, of course, the loud bang, all of a sudden in the middle of this, there was just this eerie silence as everybody stood in shock about what they had just witnessed. So as the echo of the gunshot resonated in the saloon, this deafening silence followed. And breaking through this reverie and shock, George shouted out, Oh my God, what have I done? I've killed my own brother. And after a few sobering minutes, someone ran off to alert the sheriff. Now, when the sheriff arrived, McCarty recounted to them what had happened, and he willfully gave himself up and was taken into custody. The coroner was summoned, and he soon arrived to take charge of the body of Alfred Carpenter. The coroner's jury was soon organized. Now, during this time in history, they would bring in the coroner, and often towns would have either the county sheriff that they would access, or they would have a local town constable that would be pulled in. And near as I was able to tell, they called in the sheriff on this one. Perhaps it was that he was closer There have been some other stories that you'll find in my book on Victorian Southwest Michigan true crime that are from the same time period and from Battle Creek where they called a constable instead of the sheriff. But either way, it was a law enforcement officer of some kind. And then they would summon the coroner. Now, coroner was not like we're used to seeing today in modern times, where the coroner is actually a medical doctor themselves that examines bodies and so forth. Back then, a coroner was a a public official that was elected or appointed, and their job was to take charge of a body when something like this happened or any kind of death occurred, and then they would organize what was called a coroner's jury. And this was not like a jury that you would think of in a trial where they're sitting and watching the proceedings. They actually took an active role in the investigation, which was called an inquest. And then they would bring their facts and information together to the coroner, and the coroner would make a decision whether the person was to be charged. And if they were, then it was taken to the judge. And so he forms a coroner's jury. And usually when there's a coroner's jury they select at least one doctor. In this case they brought in two doctors. A lot of the stories that you'll find in my book that I've got coming out in March, they had three or four, as many as five doctors at different time that took part in the different juries. So it depended on the crime and depended on the circumstance. In this case they brought in two different doctors. They will also bring in other businessmen to serve in on the jury, and their job would be to interview witnesses and take down notes and get all the facts of what had happened from every witness independently. And then they put all the facts together, and they make a decision with the, with the coroner present as to what they're going to do. And so this is what happened. So they formed a coroner's jury that was organized, and they did what was called an inquest. And the witnesses at the scene were all interviewed, and the jury, after all the interview— And their determination, and after the body was examined and it matched up with what was being said happened, that they determined that it wasn't a willful murder, but it was a case of criminal carelessness. So the charge of manslaughter was recommended as opposed to the charge of first-degree murder. This case was referred to the judge at the circuit court as a charge of manslaughter. So George McCarty was taken over to the jail in Marshall pending the trial in the circuit court against the charge of manslaughter. Now, he was offered the bond of $2,500. It appears like he did not pay it or come up with that money, and he remained in jail. So while in jail, he was reported to maintain his tidiness about his clothes. He was very fastidious about his dress and appearance, and he even protested that he couldn't eat the ordinary food offered by the jail but he was permitted to order his own food from the Tontine Hotel. So he had some sort of strict dietary regimen that he was trying to follow. So his trial was held in early March of 1888. And during the proceedings, as the details of the events of the Bohemia Saloon and what occurred that day were outlined in the courtroom, George McCarty held his hands over his face, and he cried nearly throughout the entire proceedings. And testimony on this was quite interesting Um, there was a man by the name of Horace Bidwell and he was the livery stable owner and he described when McCarty and Carpenter arrived that morning that when they visited his barn before going to the saloon he described that both men had carelessly handled the revolver during his visit but he noted that they were cordial to each other so they were just careless with this revolver even at that point so they were probably still semi-drunk when they arrived So he recounted whatever he saw that day and presented it to the trial. The next witness that really is quite interesting because all the other witnesses that were in the Bohemia Saloon that day worked for the railroad, except this man. And his name was Edward Turner. He testified that he was present in the saloon that morning. He was a black man and he swore that Carpenter and McCarthy were quarreling. He said that McCarty had um, called out, now I have got you, when he pointed the gun at Carpenter, and then he pulled the trigger. So this testimony was entirely contrary to the others that claimed that um, it was an accident and they were horseplay. And there were other witnesses that were saying that Edward Turner was not even there. So he was being challenged on his testimony. And of the uh, eight men that testified that were in the saloon that morning, in addition to Edward Turner, six of them said that Turner wasn't there. And two of them said that he was. So it was a very interesting dynamic going on there. You have a solo black man who says he saw the two quarreling and... The one guy pointed the gun in anger and made some curse words before he pulled the trigger. And the other people who are his colleagues at the railroad are saying it was an entirely a different story. Now, were they protecting George or was that what really happened? And was uh, Edward Turner, for whatever reason, testifying falsely? It's hard to say. Now, there was another story that I found out I tried to research what happened to Edward Turner after this now following this trial he was somewhat ostracized in the press there was a lot of threats to him personally and the only information I was able to find on Edward Turner afterwards was that about a year later he was implicated in a shooting of his own brother-in-law in another incident um, over in Jackson, I think it was, or no, it was in another community. Now, I don't know if it was the same Edward Turner. There didn't seem to be a lot of Edward Turners at the time. They described him as a black man, described him as being in an heated argument, and he shot his brother-in-law or something like that. So yeah, I'm assuming it was the same person because it's not too far of a stretch to say that somebody moved from Calhoun County over to Jackson, but that's what I was able to find in him. So the majority of the witnesses... We're all working for the railroad and were in the company of McCarty and Carpenter that morning. And this brotherhood of the railroad had their own universal loyalties among each other. And they, of course, had their loyalties with the survivor of this incident, which was George McCarty. And he was well respected amongst those men as well. So many of the witnesses at the trial were. Colleagues of him and Turner was not. Turner did not work for the railroad. Irregardless of the differences in the testimony, Turner became the prominent and sole key witness for the prosecuting attorney. And his his name was Herbert Windsor. And he was a pretty well-respected attorney during his time over in the Marshall area. And Turner endured a lot of criticism in the press following this, as I mentioned before, as well as personal threats following his testimony. I've discovered a lot of uh, critical editorials concerning Edward Turner during this time. And even one editorial in the Battle Creek Daily Moon proclaimed that he should be charged with perjury. Now, bear in mind, the Daily Moon reporter that was writing this was not in the saloon that morning. The only people who were in the saloon that morning were the men that were there with the railroad partying with McCarty and Carpenter and supposedly Edward Turner. So the defense attorney for McCarty, his name was Fred Waldley, and he attacked Turner's character and reputation at the trial. He brought witnesses that alleged Turner was not even present during the incident, Those witnesses claimed that um, he wasn't there when the incident happened. And, And like I mentioned before, six of the eight railroad men in the saloon that day claimed to not have seen Turner there. The other two maintained that they saw him. So the idea of the Brotherhood of the Railroad being in solidarity on this thing, I mean, they were saying it sounds like these guys were testifying what they honestly believe they saw. So with this contrary testimony, it's hard to decide as a reader looking at this—it's about 140 years ago, to be honest—so what what was actually the case? Was this a, a mere accident, or was it something where the guy, in a heated moment, pulled the gun on his friend and pulled the trigger and said, you know, I have have you, like, he, like uh, Turner had said, he said. Turner said, now I have got you, is what his testimony said. We will never know. But at the close of the proceedings, which was on March 14th, the prosecuting attorney, Windsor, and the defense attorney, Wadley, made compelling arguments to the jury. And the jury deliberated, and they were only out for about an hour when they returned with a verdict of not guilty. George McCarty was released from custody. And a dispatch was sent by telegraph to his mother in New York, apprising her of the news that he was acquitted. Public opinion, despite the verdict in this case, remained divided over the outcome. McCarty's friends were certainly delighted, but other citizens who attended the trial who favored Prohibition, and along with those who found Turner's testimony believable, were outraged. And this second group felt McCarty was reckless and his actions should have resulted in a conviction in the minimum of manslaughter. I mean, after all, he did shoot and kill Alfred Carpenter. So this trial continued to remain a principal topic of conversation among the railroad men following this. And Jane Carpenter, Alfred's mother, a few weeks after the trial, filed a suit against Frank Booz and the Bohemia Saloon over the death of her son. Now, a warrant from the court was issued, and the saloon owner, when he received the warrant to come to the trial and face the charges that she was making, he reached out to Jane Carpenter and arrived at a settlement where he paid her $1,000, and so she dropped the suit. So Alfred was buried at Oak Ridge Cemetery over in Marshall, And Jane Carpenter used some of the settlement for his funeral. And today there's a detailed stone marker which has one of the tree shapes that you are familiar with. If you've traveled around and looked at cemeteries, you'll occasionally come across these headstone markers that are in the shape of a tree. Many of those were members of the woodsmen of the World Organization, but not all of them. Some of them were just a marker that was defining that the individual was... The foundation of the family, and so they would have this big tree as a as a marker. Now, Alfred wasn't married; he didn't have any children. In addition to the tree marker on his gravesite, there's also a detailed urn at his burial site. So, the Bohemia Saloon ceased to exist a few years before the passing of Prohibition. Frank Booz would marry Ella Ada Holgate in 1892. And together, they would raise five children in Battle Creek, and he became revered for his faith in the community, uh, to bring business and other opportunities for decades, and he later became a founding member of the Battle Creek Country Club. And as far as I was able to tell in my research, he moved away from trying to be in the bottling of beer and the wholesale and retail distribution even following the repeal of Prohibition in 1933. So that's the end of that story. Um, there was the German immigrants that did come into the Calhoun County area and all over southwest Michigan during that time in the late 1800s. Uh, starting around the 1860s, they would they moved into the area, so they had this huge wave of uh, German immigrants that came in, and there were some early German immigrants that were among the earlier settlers of Battle Creek. So they didn't all come from the east. There was a wave of uh, German settlers. There weren't as many of them, but uh, Frank Boos and his family were among them um, that had moved here. A lot of the German families brought in the knowledge and skill on how to brew beer in America. So if you like a good glass of beer now and then, or a bottle at the local bar, or even around your house, you got to Thank the German immigrants for some of that, bringing some of that knowledge on how to brew beer. Anyway, that's going to conclude today's story. If you enjoyed today's episode and hearing about this case of the death at the Bohemia Saloon, please be sure to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. Also, check out my calendar on that website of my upcoming book signing events i've got several of them scheduled and posted there on the calendar link and there's a link also on the calendar there that you can uh, sign up for an email from the publisher i am hoping to have a pre-order link in a few weeks available i've just got to take some time perhaps this coming weekend to uh, put that on my website I've been in correspondence with my uh, publisher this week on a lot of other marketing details and that's one of the things that I want to get done in the next week or two here so I hopefully will have an announcement on that very soon for you because I've had several people reach out to me saying they'd like to pre-order the book and of course when you go to the website you'll be able to see the cover of the book there and see some of the details about that as well. So until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating stories from Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.